Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that grace extends to more and more people and may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, but to look at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Christ. Thanks, Christopher, for reading the scriptures twice this morning, both at the 8.30 and now. So, good morning, everyone. It's a great delight for me to be back here. I just came back from Korea after being gone for about two weeks. I got back around uh, 11.50 p.m. Friday night, so I'm still jet-lagged. I took a little break uh, between the first service and the second service. I went to Stacy Croft's office. Had it not been for my alarm clock, I would have missed the second service, so... <laughs> I was totally conked out. It never happens, but that's just that's what it is. So, so I could use some prayer. So can we pray together as we begin our sermon? Gracious and glorious God, we pray that you will be with us, giving us not only the alertness to uh, listen to and speak your word faithfully and, and truthfully, but most importantly, may we be able to emulate the pattern set out for us in the power of the Holy Spirit, for that which is impossible with men is possible with you, Lord. So do your work freely and sovereignly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, just as a reminder, we have launched a new summer series called uh, The Battle Within, Finding Strength in Weakness. As a church two Sundays ago, and we have come to today's text that has just been read for us. So I often say, if you have your Bibles or telephones, cell phones, please open it to today's passage and keep it there. That would be very, very helpful for all of us to kind of get through the text together. Like I said earlier, I was in Korea for two, uh, two weeks for speaking engagements. One was on uh, a conference on young Martin Luther and how he could speak to the situations of the youth in Korea, if at all. And the other one was a UN, United Nations NGO conference on education and global citizenship. While I certainly don't want to share uh, too many details, therefore boring you, 
but I do want to share what I think are germane to today's sermon text and theme. Just as Martin Luther, if you know anything about Martin Luther, this great reformer uh, whose work we celebrate next year as the 500th year anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, he embraced a good deal of mental anguish and suffering, not only as a young man, but also throughout his life. Similarly, an integral part of education as envisioned globally and holistically has to do with alleviation of suffering worldwide as a sort of concrete output and result of our education. We educate ourselves not only to empower ourselves, but to empower and encourage others than merely ourselves. Interestingly enough, in today's text just read for us by Christopher, in fact, if we were to look at a slightly broader context in all of 2 Corinthians, we see Paul's absolute transparency for the sake of communal transformation in Corinth. So if you were to look at the first chapter, verse 8, Paul had this kind of audacity to air out his own existential or spiritual laundry and told us that he despaired even of life itself. And that really is an interesting way of beginning your letter. He's basically saying, he further says that he felt a sentence of death within himself. Now, let me give, you, give us a little bit of a context about the 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is probably the most transparent letter written by Paul. It's for me, is one of my favorite letters, favorite books of all of the Bible, partly because we really get to see the heart of Paul. He's not just sharing with us what accomplishments he had, but his own rhetorical strategies to show how weak he is, how weak he was, precisely to show and demonstrate the strength of God. One of the groups that he was specifically trying to address is these so-called super apostles for whom the Christian life is all about strength and all about triumph. If you follow God in Jesus Christ, you shall have no problems whatsoever. You might have heard that before, and Paul encountered it in first century Corinth. And his apostolic strategy is to show that that is patently not the case. That if you follow God in Jesus Christ, rather than having nothing but goodness and strength and triumph and success occur, rather than that, you will find the true meaning of life through your following of this Jesus, who was called a man of sorrows, who was actually met with this dastardly destiny called crucifixion, which is a state execution. And if you were to really know God in Jesus Christ, then you would, one of the benefits of it is to know acutely the fruits and the pathway through this human and global universal dilemma called suffering. So Paul says, I, I despaired even of life itself, and he says, I felt the sentence of death. Really, really an intriguing way of trying to defend your own apostolic authority. And I think we'll get to see why that is. Furthermore, in today's chapter, in chapter 4, both in verses 1 and 16, almost as bookends of this paragraph, Paul tells us that we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart, right? So as this biblical scholar said that, you know, in a very down-to-earth fashion, Paul tells the readers that we do not lose heart precisely because he was likely to lose heart. He's reminding himself, look, we don't lose heart because, well, I'm feeling like I'm about to lose heart. And he is kind of reminding himself as well as his readers that we are actually embraced by the God of grace and glory. Therefore, we do not lose heart. In other words, the situation he found himself in as he wrote what is likely to have been his third letter to this uh, nascent Christian community in Corinth 
was really full of his deep pathos. He really cared about this church. He, pl- he was a church planner, as many of us know, right? And he had planted this church, and he loved this church. The city of Corinth is much like uh, many of the metropolises of our day. Corinth was a city known for its culture, commerce, and cults. And scholarly, scholarly estimation is that during the time of Paul's visit to Corinth, and we read about it in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 18, there are about 800,000 inhabitants in this capital city of Roman Greece. So it was a capital city of Roman Greece. It had about 800,000 people during this time period, about 2,000 years ago. Then we can guesstimate that this is a very prominent city. And as we see that Corinth had all kinds of people coming to it, bringing their own life philosophies and kind of, you know, uh, lifestyles and the way that they live and, and are in the world. And it was a flashy city, a community that was that prized show over substance, perhaps. And religiously speaking, it was also no exception. And one of the key existential issues that surrounded this ancient Roman city in the first century A.D., as it does this contemporary American city, Nashville, in 21st century is suffering. And Paul writes directly to this powerful issue rather personally and poignantly, all the while not taking his eyes off of the one who offered him a new saving perspective on this perduring human dilemma, suffering. What do we do with it? So for today's sermon, we'll develop and analyze together three major points, and they are traumas for charge of clay, treasures in jars of clay, transformation of jars and clay, jars of clay. So traumas, treasures, and transformation. Let's look at the first point, traumas for jars of clay. So let's think about these three words that begin with T, right? Traumas, treasures, and transformation. The one that doesn't really fit that well is the first one, trauma. In fact, we don't hear the word trauma in sermons a lot do we? We don't talk about traumas in worship services a lot, and I wonder why. I wonder why it is that we don't like to talk about traumas. Perhaps it is too personal. Perhaps it is at times embarrassing. Perhaps it cuts too deeply into our psyche. It reveals the nervous kind of raw endings of our own journey, that life isn't all that great together. I became a Christian at age 21, as a junior in college, and I hated Christians before I became a Christian. One of the things that I really had trouble with Christianity was is inauthenticity. I felt as if when you come to church, you have to pretend as if everything is all right. You maybe with your friends at bars and pubs, you can be yourself, especially after a couple of drinks, you really kind of start telling your friends what's going on in your life. But in church, you have to put up your best self that there is no way that you can really let others know how badly you're doing. After my conversion experience, one of the first books I read was this book that we're reading together, 2 Corinthians, and it blew me away. 2 Corinthians blew me away precisely because this guy was trying to defend his apostolic authority. To put it bluntly, he was trying to keep his job. There are many critics, many kind of attackers, and his strategy was precisely not what I had expected of Christianity. That here's a guy who was about to lose his job because he was so ineffective, and he's basically telling them, okay, I'm ineffective, all right, but let me tell you somebody who's truly effective. You say that I'm weak, and okay, I am weak, but let me tell you somebody who's truly strong. 
And in fact, throughout the letter, woven throughout the letter, he says that my strength is sufficient for you because my strength is revealed in your weakness. I came to America when I was 15. So I was in middle school, finishing up my middle school and just starting ninth grade. My American dream, as is true for many refugees and immigrants and all of us, is work hard and good things will happen, right? And don't let anyone see you sweat. And I just believed that to be the American gospel. And then the gospel I found in Jesus Christ was precisely not that, although many of us are still trying to undo that American gospel, embracing in instead the real gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as we read in 2 Corinthians, is that in and through our weakness, in and through our frailty, in and through our depressions, in and through our kind of morbid thoughts about finishing this journey, in and through those moments of vulnerability and weakness, God shows who God is in a big and major way. And we'll see that. So the first point is traumas for jars of clay. We see that in verses 8 through 12. Look with me, friends. Notice the language here as well. Paul says we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We carry in our body the death of Jesus. We're always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Death is at work in us. So let's stop there and think about this. From the standpoint of a mental health professional, this person was hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, carrying a body to the death of Jesus, who has always been given over to death, someone who believes that death is at work in herself or himself. No sane healthcare professional will tell that person, wow, you're doing great. No one will say that. No one will say, you're doing great, so how can I be more like you? No one will say that. No one should say that. Yet, as we read this story, don't we say, wow, isn't Paul great? As we read the letter, I think many of us are drawn to that deep, deep sympathy with Paul and identification with Paul. Many of us, including me, will read 2 Corinthians and walk away by saying, wow, here is a great St. Paul who went through a lot of hardship. He was struck down. He was persecuted. He was given over to death for Jesus' sake. And yet, he found some really mysterious reason to keep on keeping on. And it's because precisely through his weakness, he found the sufficiency of Christ. What I find really appealing about this letter is I see Paul's transparency and authenticity, especially regarding his own traumas, while following his own religious convictions and lifelong vision. And in fact, I see that woven right the way through the Scripture itself. As I became a little bit more mature in the Lord, as I began to read Scriptures a little bit more, I began to see that woven right the way throughout the Scriptures is a story of humanity and story of God. The story of humanity who in many ways is rebellious or clueless or totally frail, And in our moments of weakness, God shows up in a very, very powerful and transformative fashion. To see the traumas for jars of clay, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 21. And there we encounter a woman named Hagar. Hagar is a woman that may be familiar to us, at least by name, although her story may not be so familiar to us. She became the mother of this guy named Ishmael, who was an older brother of Isaac. Right? And Ishmael and Isaac became the sort of patriarchal figure for Judaism and Islam in some ways. 
And Ishmael's mother, Hagar, was a maid of Sarah, right? So the, the way that she became, Hagar became, um, Hagar became pregnant is through Sarah and Abram's urging. But the end result of her pregnancy and having this child named Ishmael was that she gets kicked out. She gets kind of exiled from her home, right? So change in life circumstance for Hagar and Ishmael was that they are driven away from the comforts of home in Genesis chapter 21 and their tent, and that they are now facing the hard harshness and parched conditions of Desert Storm. She sat about, in Genesis 21, we find this story, she sat about a bow shot away from her son, Ishmael, and Abraham kicked her and her son away from their tent and safety with a skin of water and some bread. Basically, it's a death mission, right? Mission of death. I'm going to send you on with this little bit of water and a little bit of bread. When you run out of it, hopefully you'll meet some other kind of traveling Wilburys and you can join them, or I'm sorry, but you can't live with us. So really a, a kind of desperate story, right? Imagine ourselves in Hagar's situation. Imagine ourselves in Ishmael's situation. You have just run out of water, and you are Hagar, and you cannot bear to watch your son die, so you have come about a bow shot away, and then you're just watching her, and she says, you know, I cannot watch the boy die. And she sat and she sobbed. In that moment of trauma, God shows up. Here's a miraculous divine intervention. God has heard her crying. God tells her through this angel, do not be afraid. God opens up Hagar's eyes, and she's able to see water. Voila, what a miracle. She has just run out of water, and God opens up her eyes so that she could see water. And then what? Then provides water for both the boy and mother, thereby providing to her and the readers that just as Hagar called God, someone who sees me in Genesis 16, in situations of distress and despair, the irony here is that as a result of encountering this God, who will make him into a great nation, God promises that I'll make Ishmael into a great nation, both Hagar and Ishmael continue to live out in a desert area, daily proving that out of trauma, God can offer transformation, right? Here's a story of Hagar, who is really kind of desperate and despairing, and she says, I cannot watch the boy die. God shows up in that moment of trauma and offers transformation. But our second story, our second vignette, is a bit more, more traumatic, precisely because of that, quite frankly, I believe, we pay insufficient attention to it. I'm referring to Psalm 88. I know that for some people here at CPC, Psalm 88 is a familiar psalm. At lunch with someone who, for whom this psalm means all the world to him. But for many others, it doesn't. So I'll read with you just a few verses there while encouraging perhaps you to read it in its entirety if you have the time sometime this week. Psalm 88. The psalm was written by a man named Haman the Ezraite, and he was a court musician and songwriter, worked closely with and was therefore favored by King David. We find that in 1 Chronicles 25, 5. He also has three daughters and 14 sons, thereby acquainting him acutely with the vicissitudes of life directly and vicariously through his children. 17 kids, I'm sure will do that. He wrote today's psalm. I have no idea whether that's true or not. I only have one. So but he wrote today's psalm, and this psalm, more than any others, presents an interpretive challenge, partly because, because of its ending. So let's have a look, okay? It begins by saying this O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. 
for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like the dead that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depth of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your ways. You have caused my friends to shun me. You have made me repulsive to my friends. I am trapped with no way of escape. My eyes grow dim with sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, and I spread out my hands to you. Verses 16 through the end. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. Lover and friend, you have put far away from me. Therefore, darkness is my closest friend. That's how it ends. Darkness is my closest friend. Therefore, some people don't like that psalm. Oh, that's a depressing psalm. I don't like that psalm because it has no happy ending. Well, folks, that's why I love this psalm. That's why I love Christianity. That's why I love the book of Psalms. It's got both delightful as well as depressing psalms. It's, some of us prefer Psalm 42, though it talks about it like that as a happy ending. No, no, no. Psalm 88 must be in the book of Psalms. And I'm really, really thankful to God because God did not allow the human editors and redactors, I don't like this psalm, let's get rid of it. No, it's in there for this edifying purposes. If we were to write a song with this psalm as basis of lyrics, we need to look no further than Simon and Garfinkel's song, Sound of Silence which begins by saying, Hello, darkness, my old friend. Here I come to you again. So often we're uncomfortable with Psalm 88. So, but then, you know, we have to remember that Jesus, whom we are allegedly following and emulating, said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A direct quotation from Psalm 22. So, friends, if you feel that this psalm describes where and who you are perfectly, then I want to reassure you that God has a place in his heart and has a plan for you. The psalm was not, like I said earlier, deleted by the redactors or whoever they are. God, in his marvelous wisdom and loving kindness, preserved this psalm so that we can see in this psalm that even if our traumas and pummelings of suffering might lead us to say, lovers and friends you have put far away from me, therefore darkness is my closest friend. You are okay in God's presence. That leads me to my second point, treasures in jars of clay. Here, Paul, back to our 2 Corinthians text, Paul offers a very interesting anthropological insight, meaning a cool look into what we are created to be and what we are meant to become. He says that we are jars of clay. In other words, no extraordinary creatures from one angle. And yet we have this treasure placed in jars of clay. So what comes to your mind when you think of jars of clay? For me, the first thought is this Christian band called Jars of Clay. I mean, like, I don't know. I should be more, I should be more biblical and say, oh, well, the first thought is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. No, when I hear the phrase, jars of clay, I think of them. And some way, probably whipping out your phones and looking them up, their songs. They had a song called, I'll Fly Away. It was an old Christian hymn that I love their rendition, right? So when I think of jars of clay, I think of this music band, the Christian band. The second thing that comes to mind when I think of jars of clay is my early childhood. 
I don't know about you, but I've broken several of these jars of clay in my own, in my own lifetime, right? We didn't have a lot, but there are some that my mom and dad really treasured. And I don't know, among the three of us, I had the singular privilege of having that sort of ability to break things or drop things. When I think of jars of clay, not very good memories come to my mind. So either a Christian band or traumatic memories, I don't know. But third place here in this text, Paul is talking about jars of clay as a kind of metaphor for the human existence. He's not down on humanity. He's not saying that, well, you're a terrible group of whatever. No, no, what Paul is trying to get at is there's a real kind of um, paradox of the human existence. There's a real interesting dialectic. On the one hand, we are sinful and corrupt, yet at the same time, we are the pinnacle of God's creative genius. Because of sin, we are kind of entrapped so often within our own selves. We are kind of in our own echo chamber and can't get out of it. So we are the sort of a jars of clay, but at the same time, Paul says we are the treasure, we are the jars of clay that carry this treasure within us. God in his marvelous wisdom has predestined or ordained so that we will become the carriers and the purveyors of the treasures, though we may be jars of clay. So then it behooves us to ask the question, what is the treasure, right? What is the treasure? Now, on the one hand, the treasure that Paul is talking about is the revelation of the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, about which he amply spoke in chapter 3. But I do think that there's further clues about the treasure given in our immediate text. So shall we have a look? Okay. So that he says, um, the treasure, to put it very, very plainly, is the power of paradox. The treasure, I don't know if you heard this, but the treasure that Paul is talking about is the power of paradox. The treasure is the ability experienced by Paul and offered by this God of all comfort to see that trauma is not the last word in our current earthly journey. The power paradox, in other words, look at verse 7. Paul says this all-surpassing power comes not from ourselves but from God. Right? So what exactly is the treasure? It is the ability, one, to see life as not crushed even though it is hard-pressed on every side. It is that treasure. It is the treasure to walk through life not in despair, even though you're perplexed, even, very, even perhaps very, very deeply. It is the ability. Treasure is the ability to know that you're not abandoned, even though you are persecuted in life. The treasure that Paul is talking about is the ability to believe that you're not destroyed, even though you experience being struck down regularly, if not daily, if not hourly. Treasure is the, the ability to experience that the life of Jesus is revealed precisely through the experience that is more akin to the death of Jesus. It is the ability to believe deep down that life is the driving power and principle of our story, even though death is apparently the reigning paradigm that we experience right now. This treasure that Paul is talking about is not some kind of, what, kind of a denial of reality or gravity-defying daredevil stance. Far from it, friends. It means, among other things, I believe, to have an honest and sober assessment of where and how we are. We feel abandoned. We feel easily given over to despair and losing of heart. 
We feel that within. We feel that without. We see that in our city. We see that in our country. We see that in our world. If you only care to open your eyes and see it as Jesus does. Jesus told his disciples, look and see the harvest. See the harvest, not only for gospel, but for true embrace of God. As the great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky said, pain and suffering are always inevitable for a large intelligence and a deep heart. The really great people, he says, I think, have great sadness on earth. If you want that exact quote, it's in the children's quiz, actually. Pain and suffering are always inevitable for a large intelligence and a deep heart. The really great people have great sadness on earth. In other words, I think, you can walk through life pretending that pain and suffering don't exist. Right? In fact, most of our life, in fact, most of my life, we are doing our very best so that we postpone the visitation of pain and suffering until the very last minute, if not the last second, of our earthly sojourn. And all of us are in that camp. Let me unpack it for us. Throughout our life journey, we're taught that we should choose life over death, right? Absolutely. And we are doing our best. As a parent, I do the same. Making sure that, you know, our child has good things rather than bad things happen to him. But then what are we educating ourselves into then? What are we inoculating ourselves against? We're doing our best to buy insurance policies of very different types, so that we shield ourselves against from suffering and sickness, right? And that makes sense. That makes sense. But if all we do is to shield ourselves from suffering and sickness until the very last minute, when and how will we learn the art of dealing with these ever-present, ever-persistent reality called suffering and evil in our world? That, I think, is what Dostoevsky is saying. Dostoevsky is saying that pain and suffering are always inevitable for a large intelligence and a deep heart. The really great people have great sadness. That means you are not just playing hooky with life. You're not just going through life. Just You're immersing yourself in life. Jesus, when he was here on earth, he immerses himself in this life's endeavors and, and, and enterprises. You see, if you see not just the face, but deeper than that, deeper than Deeper than the surface, we begin to see that there are people who are hurting all around us, right in our pews. As we come to the Lord's Supper, it's a powerful reminder that as Jesus' body was not just suffering through natural death, his body was rudely broken, his blood was violently shed in order to reconcile us to God himself. You see, the Lord's Supper is a powerful reminder of who God is and what God has done and what God is continually doing to reconcile the world to himself. Reconcile the sick and suffering world. God did not say, you all have a good time. No, God says, I'm going to come to where you are. I'm going to, and I'm not going to come with a fanfare. I'm not going to come with, you know, such royal splendor and glory. I'm going to be born in a place that most people would avoid like the plague. That's not the kind of place where you want to have your child, your only child, only begotten son be born. And you're, that's not the type of death, crucifixion is the type of death that you would want for your child. Think about why God would do that. And think about the relationship between God and suffering. There are many novels, many books, many treatises, many philosophical writings that are done on pain and suffering. We all know that. But one of the stories that really deeply affect me is the story of Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus Christ, who is emblematic of, of who God is, indeed the very God of very God, when he came here, he was born in a terrible place, he died a terrible death, put it very bluntly. And why was that? If God is truly all-knowing and all-powerful, why the heck would God choose that particular pathway for his only son? What was he up to? What was he trying to demonstrate and teach us? I think God, in this marvelous wisdom of Jesus Christ, shows that God will embrace that suffering. And it is in our act of embracing of that suffering servant that we participate in that renovatory and reconciling work that God is doing. Therefore, we see ourselves as treasures. We carry ourselves as treasures in jars of clay precisely because we see our life as treasure, that we see our life story as paradox, that in some ways it is truly the case that someone might say, your life is terrible. But at the same time, on the other hand, through the angle of Jesus Christ, we see that God is healing us, molding us, shaping us, and transforming us. And that leads me to my last point, transformation of jars of clay. Look with me in verses 16 through 18. Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, this is very, very interesting point, isn't it? For what what Paul is trying to do, and as was the custom, religious custom of this world in first century Corinth, that most the indigenous religious traditions of Corinth held to some kind of belief in afterlife, and quite possibly affected by Stoicism and others. Yet for Paul, the only one who is worthy of showing us the way to eternal glory is the one who went through death in his resurrection. That Jesus is the one, and Paul is, this Second Corinthians is deeply Christological, deeply about Jesus, because Paul says, my life is really wrapped up with Jesus Christ. For to me, to live is Christ, right? And as he says in Colossians, that Christ is the one who is the hope of my glory. And so for Paul, his life begins and ends with that identification that God has made with him. Therefore, Paul in his Christian journey says, I identify with Christ because he has done that already. Therefore, he sees himself as that. That means because Christ is the one who went through death, we are no longer fearful of death. Therefore, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes fun of death, doesn't he? He says, where or death is your victory? Where or death is your sting? You got nothing on me now. And so he can say honestly that I see life not as life and death, but life and continuing on into eternal life. That death has no stronghold over me. Although death does bring grief, although death does bring sorrow because we're having to say goodbye to our loved ones, but what Paul is trying to do is not to focus on temporary invisibility, but what he's trying to do is to focus on eternal and that which is invisible. And that's exactly what he's doing here. We don't lose heart because we're wasting away. Yes, it is patently the case. You know, I watched this movie, uh, what is called Captain America, Civil War last night with my son. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen it. I'm not going to tell you much about the movie, but I'll tell you in the beginning of the movie, the year that, the, the, back in the old days, the year is 1991, right? <laughs> and after the movie, my son yeah, said, you know, something like that, you know, that 1991, that's old days, right? I said, son, 
I was alive in 1991. I just graduated from college a year prior to that. Now, I was momentarily depressed. I was like, wow, I'm over my half-life. I'm 49 this, 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 this year, and, and I can see honestly that the past 49, will I have the next 49 years? Probably not, and I'm okay with that. But what has come to me as a realization is I'm kind of a middle-aged dude, and that's okay. Because I'm focusing on not, always, not on what is seen, though what is seen can be a cause for depression and despair. <laughs> I think that's why Paul is saying that, actually, because he's like looking at himself and, oh, I'm getting depressed. But so he says, okay, I got to actually focus on what is unseen because that is not the cause for despair but hope. And Paul is absolutely and ruthlessly and authentically honest. He says, look, life as we see it is cause for a lot of grief. I am a cause for a lot of grief, but therefore I really need to see my life in and through Jesus Christ. I need to see my visibility in terms of invisibility, that was, and I need to see the temporality in and through the reality of eternality, and that is how I see my life as truly worth it. Let me wrap this up now. So this transformation that God is bringing about, that means we need to actually at the same time be patient with one another. Let me unpack it for us. So some of us love 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and says, yes, that is right for me to live as Christ. But yet there are many of us, even in the Christian community, for whom the story of their life journey is Psalm 88. For many of them, they can honestly say that, you know what, darkness is my closest friend. Jesus may be alive and I believe that, but my life is really, really hard. So we need to actually bear with each other. So, you know, I was at this uh, UN conference, and I was part of the drafting committee, so we kind of wrote together this um, action plan as part of this uh, United Nations Conference on Education and Global Citizenship. And the last night of our work together went from 9 p.m. to 4 a.m., because there are about seven of us in the room, and we're trying to kind of duke it out as to what language is most appropriate, you know, who is to be included and who is not to be all of that. And this, the, the conference co-chair, this guy was a really funny guy. He, uh, he kept saying to everyone, he was going to say something, but he would always preface it by saying, bear with me. Bear, and then in that seven-hour period, he said, bear with me about ten times. So it got to be like an inside joke. You know, bear with me, and he would say something difficult, and bear with me. So at the end, and when everything was said and done, every one of us kind of said, this is great, great document. He sent an email with a picture of a bear hugging a small child. And it says, bear with me. You know, we need to, and that, that, that warm embrace of this bear hugging this child, to me, is a beautiful picture of a Christian community. Right? We need to have that bear hugging us. That bear may know, may be much more powerful, much more advanced or whatever, but that little child is okay standing or in the arms of this bear. Some of us are in Psalm 88, verse 18. Some of us are saying, you know, darkness is my oldest friend, my best friend. Yet others are saying, for me to live is Christ, and come what may, I'll be okay. So we need to bear with each other. If we are truly an authentic and broken and vulnerable community of faith, that means we should be okay with saying, you know, I don't have it together. I feel clueless about Jesus. I feel like my life is just coming to this collision course, and I don't know what to do. I hope and pray that ours is and, and will continue to become a community where being vulnerable is perfectly okay, it's in fact necessary and mandatory, that we have the audacity and transparency to say, you know what, let me tell you how I'm doing. And 
embrace one another, bearing with each other, as we can say to each other, bear with me. As Christ has borne with us for such a long while, may we continually to have that extension of grace so that we will see the transformation of jars of clay. Traumas for jars of clay, treasures in jars of clay will ultimately all lead us to that transformation of these wonderful jars of clay called men and women created in the, recreated in, in the image of Christ. Let's pray.